Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Med- Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today, we check in on the latest developments in the case of Temujin Kenzu. Arrested, tried and convicted for the murder of Scott Macklem in 1986. 37 years later, Temujin Kenzu is still incarcerated for this crime. A crime he's always maintained he's innocent of. To accept this call, press zero. To refuse this This call is from a correctional facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Good day, Cobra. Well, what a pleasant surprise. How are you, my friend? Oh, how's my timing? Perfect, mate. Absolutely fine. I was just sitting here actually just typing up some narration, so I'm always happy to be interrupted uh, while doing that. It's one of my least favourite tasks in the world, so uh, happy for the call. I'm glad I could bring you a little bit of respite from your slave (laughs) labour. I'm not going to talk about slave labour with you, sir, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm, uh, they're working me hard. I have to, uh, I have to work a full time job for ninety eight cents a day, and in Michigan, work is mandatory. So I don't even know you spoke about. What, what do you do for work in there? Uh, I'm a, what they call a porter. It's like basically a custodian, a janitor. Yeah, I work right. in the gymnasium, so I take care of the gymnasium. And that, that gives you time out of the, more time out of your cell, does it? Yeah, it gives me time out of cell, and it's a chance to get a little bit of exercise time. Michigan used to be really liberal about its, you know, its out, out of cell activities, but the last five or six years, well, they, you know, they used COVID as an excuse to take everything from us. Yeah, and, and then when COVID was over, they didn't give any of it back. Yeah. So we used to be out all day for yard, and, and we had what's called the small yard, which is a second yard around the housing unit. And then we had the gym was open all day and visiting was from morning till evening. And now everything is like an hour or two if you're lucky. And, uh, you know, we, we can't get them to fix any of it. So uh, it's, it's just making people more restless and more angry. So they spend all day long gambling or getting high. And then that leads to all the violence in here. So it's a, it's a self-perpetuating system. And, and they could fix it. They just don't want to. <laughs> they, it's, I know it sounds crazy, but they like it when it's worse because they get more security and they get more funding. So the worse it is for us the better it is for them. Honestly, Michigan is, I'm, I'm slowly learning more and more that Michigan is probably one of the worst states in America when it comes to this, anything really. Yeah. Like I, I've got so many stories. I've had a, a, new, yeah. a new couple of stories come in from Michigan. Yeah, you know, it's a, horrible. Yeah. It's crazy, yeah. honestly. Well, I mean, look just, at our governor. You know, she ran on a progressive platform of criminal justice reform and, you know, uh, social awareness and calling out her better angels and all this BS, right? And she has not only done nothing to make the MDOC any better, but it's gotten a hundred times worse since she's been governor. And she will not get rid of the director because it's a friend of hers. And um, even though our union, our guards union, which is over 6,000 members, did a 6,000 person no confidence vote for her termination. And the governor just told the union to F off. Now in the States, 
you know, Democrats pretend to be very pro-union. So when the union said, okay, we need something from you now, get rid of this horrible director who's taken everything from us, um, she's refused to do so. And the funny thing is the director taunts herself as a social progressive, too. So this is a problem we've had in the States for a long time. I don't know how much you know about our politics, but we have, we have the Democrats on the left calling the Republicans on the right racist. But the Democrats do all the oppressive stuff that hurts the minorities the most. And when we had slavery in America, it was the Democrats that fought to keep slavery and the Republicans that opposed it during the war. And then during our civil rights movement in the 60s, it was the Democrats and the Democratic governors that wanted to maintain slavery and the Republicans that opposed it. But to this day, the Democrats run on this platform that says that the Republicans are a bunch of racist Nazis, even though we're getting uh, in the Republican Party more and more uh, minorities in, in huge numbers, because the Republican policies tend to be, you know, government leave me alone, lower taxes, things like that. And uh, if the Republicans ever got smart and embraced things like criminal justice and prison reform, they would own the country. It's sad they don't. Uh, one thing Republicans don't care about is they don't care about me being innocent. As a party, they could care less. So my support base in that regard is mostly Democratic, and it's really sad. Because um, in America, we're so divided right now that you obviously if Biden says something, then Trump hates it. And if Trump says something, Biden hates it. And it splits the country right down the middle. And it doesn't matter how good the thing is. If one side likes it, the other side just automatically has to oppose it. It's, it's, the, it's the worst I've ever seen in my 60 years. It never used to be like this, you know. It was um, in the 70s in America. The parties got along. They went out to lunch together. You know, they worked on bills together. Now they just sit back and they hiss at each other like cobras. So this was actually great timing for Temujin to call, not only because it got me out of writing narration, but also because Temujin's attorney, Imran Syed from the Michigan Innocence Clinic, had recently sent me an article that had gone out about Temujin and a couple of aviation experts who had spoken out to dispute the prosecution's ludicrous theory of how he managed to commit this crime. Just to refresh your memory, Scott Macklem was killed over 400 miles away from where dozens of witnesses would place Temujin around a couple of hours before and after this crime. There was just no way he could have made it there and back again in order to have committed this crime. Unless, of course, numerous witnesses who didn't really like him decided to lie for him. Or, of course, he chartered a private plane from the local airport to fly him there and back again. And this theory was the one that the prosecution ran with. The issue with this? Well, for one, Temujin had no money. He and his partner at the time, who he was actually with the morning of this murder, would shop at thrift shops for clothes for themselves as well as their soon-to-be-born child. And they could barely cover their rent. However, that's not what makes the theory utterly ridiculous, because there are absolutely no records of any flights taking off and landing at any of the airports around the time of the crime. No pilots have ever come forward or been found by police to say that they flew Temujin on that fateful day. Nonetheless, the prosecution would call to the stand a pilot to testify that this was possible. He would suggest that there's often pilots sitting around aeroplane hangars just cleaning their planes who would happily take someone on a flight. Now, ignoring the ludicrous fact that pilots potentially just sit around hangars waiting for fares, this pilot that was brought to the stand was also the personal pilot of the man who was the prosecutor in this case. 
Now, if you're just thinking, well, that all sounds ludicrous, you're not alone. Because in a latest development for Temujin's case, two gentlemen who actually worked at those airports during the time that Temujin was apparently supposed to have taken off and landed from them, have spoken out and written letters to the governor of Michigan to say exactly that. That this theory presented in court is, and I quote, so improbable, it's unbelievable. I caught up with Temujin's attorney, Imran Syed, from the Michigan Innocence Clinic to discuss the latest update. Uh, as always, Imran, thank you so much indeed for uh, jumping on to uh, let me know what's happening. Of course, Temujin Kenzu, everyone knows the story by now, and his push for freedom, which is basically at the stage of clemency, is really the option left on the table. Governor Wetmore is the governor of Michigan who would be the person to grant him that clemency, as we know. At this stage, getting absolutely zero response, and she hasn't sort of said anything about it, but there's been a recent push from your team uh, and uh, some letters that have been written to Governor Wetmore in the form of some former pilots and even someone who worked uh, at their particular airport where Temujin would have had to get this plane from. Um, can you tell, sort yeah. of fill us in on the details of, of where we're at? Sure. So, uh, you know, I'll start by saying, um, yeah, that clemency has been pending for about a year and a half now. And I know a lot of people are disheartened by it. A lot of supporters of Temujin, um, Temujin himself, of course, who's paying the the biggest price every day sitting in prison. Um, I do look at it slightly differently, though. I see this as a long fight and yep. not one that we've lost. And no news is good news. Sort of as, thing. I mean, to some extent, yeah. And that's, that's again, I recognize easy enough for me to say, not being the one who's incarcerated. Yeah. Um, but we knew, uh, as with every clemency, it's an uphill fight, right? Um, unfortunately, there's just not enough of a culture uh among our politicians of using the clemency power to help innocent people. You know, you hear using the clemency power to help those who did their time and have reformed themselves. And that's great. I support that. But there are people incarcerated like Temujin who shouldn't be there at all. And um, for some reason they can't get any help. And to me, that's a little bit backwards. Um, but either way, uh, you know, all that is to say that I still have faith and, and hope and we're going to keep fighting until, you know, we're told we can't anymore. Um, but to address your question, um, what's been happening is uh, recently we've had an investigative uh, reporter who's who's kind of been helping us on the, on the case. Um, he's covered a lot of uh, different sorts of criminal cases, including wrongful conviction cases, and he kind of took a deep dive into this one. Um, and he's the one who started figuring out, well, what more can be done to debunk this whole uh, charter plane theory? And um, one thing he decided to do was call the people who would have managed the airports, both up in Escanaba, Michigan, which is near where Temujin actually was, also in Port Huron, Michigan, which is where the crime happened. Um, and if the alibi witnesses in this case are telling the truth, and we have every reason to think they are, you know, they were, they were not impeached, um, then the only way that Temujin commits this crime is to, you know, get back in time to be seen by his alibi witnesses would be to charter this plane. And, you know, there was never any evidence that it happened. Uh, it was always simply a, a hypothetical, uh, you know, speculative uh, theory. Um, and, and I, I was pleased though, that we're, we're finally able to go one step beyond that, um, by speaking to the people who ran these airports, um, this investigator who's been working with us was able to confirm that 
had such a flight happened, it would have involved certain things, and those things didn't take place here. And had such a flight happened, there would have been records of it. Um, and this insinuation that you can just show up at an airport, take a flight, and there would be no record of it um, is is unreasonable, irrational, and and borders on impossible. So that's that's the main stuff we were able to get out of that. Um, and these these uh, people who provided these three new letters also, uh, at least a couple of them, were familiar with the pilot that the prosecution used. They were personally familiar with that guy, and they essentially said, you know, he was a teller of tales, really, right? Like he would exaggerate things. Um, one of the letters even offers some examples of that, and basically says anything that guy said should be taken with a grain of salt. And I say that as a friend of that guy. They were just explaining that the whole story they made up about this case was nonsense. And, and I, you know, I had said that in the beginning. Uh, they, they brought in this pilot who, as you know, was Robert Cleland's personal pilot. And uh, he stands there going, oh, there's these pilots just standing around in airports polishing airplanes waiting for a ride like cabbies. And I was like, that's such BS. Mm. That does not happen. Well, they actually found the guy that managed the airport down in Port Huron, the one that managed the airport in Escanaba, and they both said, that's an absolute lie. You can't just run into a hangar and go, I need a quick flight out of here. So to us, all of this is just further proof that, you know, this isn't a matter of opinion. It, it simply isn't possible for Temujin Kinsu to have committed this crime. And regardless of how much the police may have wanted to target him, how much various members of the community may have wanted to target him, once we conclude there's no humanly possible way for him to commit a crime, Crime, we can't just say let him sit in prison. So that's that's kind of how we're hoping um, this whole thing gets presented. And and you know it's just further proof that he didn't do this, and the governor should you know act where so many uh, prior to her have failed to act. One of these pilots is quoted as saying, "It's so improbable, it's unbelievable." Yeah, and the cost, you know, the, the cost would be so insane, Jack. I mean, if you're going to just tell a person, "I need you to take your half a million dollar airplane on a secret flight." You're probably going to have to shove a lot of money, way, way beyond the fuel and a fare, to get somebody to do something that sleazy, you know. And then it's going to come out eventually. There's radar tracking all over this country, and there always has been. And even in the 80s during the Cold War, we, we were tracking everything that was in the sky. So there's no, there's no radar hits for any planes doing these secret flights. It was all just garbage, and they knew it when they made it up. But I was a little 23-year-old kid with a drunk crackhead for a lawyer, so they could say whatever they wanted to the jury. There's nothing I could do about it. You know, we didn't have the Internet back then. There was an article done recently by NBC News, um, which you sent me a copy of to have a look at. And um, Mike Wendling, who's the current prosecutor in St. Clair County, has dismissed the plane theory as a red herring. But... It was the prosecution that came up with that theory. So him, him calling this a red herring, it's, it's, it's like, well, hold on a second. Your office essentially came up with this apparent red herring. Yeah. So this was, this was your theory. This wasn't anyone else that came up with this. You came up with this theory. And he then goes on to say if you were to sit down and look at this case with fresh again, Freeman would still be the leading suspect. To me... Imran, I'm sure you, you probably won't say what you really think because, you know, you work within the, the bounds of this area, but this gentleman yeah. should not be in the position he is in if he believes, looking at that evidence, it still suggests that Temujin would be the lead suspect today. I mean, because that is insanity. Yeah. Um, look, I have a lot of thoughts. I was, uh, I was interested uh, to read that Mr. Wendling did respond uh, to a media inquiry from NBC uh, and gave his thoughts. His thoughts are the same as, you know, the last time he spoke, which might have been three or four years ago or the t last time before that. And I have to say, it's incredibly frustrating, but it's not surprising. With him and with other prosecutors, uh, especially those who lead an office, uh, an office that is being um, 
you know, fields that they're being targeted or are under attack over a very high profile possible wrongful conviction, um, they react in a very predictable manner. Um, the more questionable a case is, the more they double and triple down. Um, and yeah, to, to an outside observer, it looks absolutely absurd. Um, and I'm glad that it looks that way to you. And I hope that's how it comes across to anyone who's familiar with this case, because it's just, it's irrational and, and completely incorrect what he's implying about both the charter plane theory and about Mr. Kinsu's involvement here. First of all, this whole idea that it's a red herring that Kensu created is absolute nonsense. Uh, I know exactly where that comes from. It comes from Mr. Kensu once he was arrested, being questioned for this and saying, I live or, or I was in a town 400 miles away. The only way I could do this is if I had a plane or something, right? And so that's where this whole thing, uh, the prosecution gets to, oh, look, he he suggested the plane theory. He made it up which is just nuts. He's not the one who offered a baseless theory to a jury in a very, very questionable manner. Whether that theory should ever have been heard by a jury is questionable at best. And and I think a, a rational judge would say, you have to have evidence or else you don't get to present a theory. That's how this works in, in court most of the time. Now, as far as Mr. Wendling specifically, I haven't spoken to him about this case in years. If I had to bet on it, I would tell you that he's never read a brief that we wrote. Um, I think he's relying entirely on what his predecessor has told him about Kensu, um, what other prosecutors in the office have told him about Kensu. That is that is my view, um, because I don't think anyone, even someone who, of course, has every reason to be biased, he's on one side of this case, there's no doubt about it, even someone in that position, I think if they were to read the record of this case, would walk away thinking, this case is extremely thin for what the prosecution has always argued that it was. I mean, there is very, very minimal evidence, even if you credit everything in a light most favorable to the prosecution. You've got a jailhouse informant who's recanting. You've got an eyewitness who's describing someone changing his mind, going back to it. You've got no one who saw this crime. Um, and then, you know, later it emerges that the witnesses who did identify him did so from a very, very manipulated photo lineup. And that's it. You know, the transcript is over a thousand pages, but that is it. There's nothing else that's inculpatory. And for someone who is familiar with our justice system and a prosecutor within it to come out and say, if you read the evidence, he'd be your number one suspect. That's just that's just not reasonable. That's just not a comment that I think is an informed comment. Uh, it's my opinion. Of course, I don't know that he hasn't read the record of the case, but I don't think anyone who reads the record would, would frame it that way. And that's what I was going to say to you. Do you think he truly believes what he's saying or is he just protecting his office and I would imagine if he has not read this case or the brief of this case then I'm sure he probably 100% believes it if he's just going by what his predecessor said because if he has read this case and he's still saying that that's where you have to question everything yeah. that's being you know because it's just absolutely absurd uh, and if yeah. he if he hasn't read it why is he even commenting? Why is he coming out with? I mean, surely as a professional and in as a, a higher position as he's in, if he's going to comment on a case, he should be fully across that case. He should know everything about that yeah. case. If he's not, don't say anything. Just be quiet. Just yeah. or just say he was found guilty by my predecessors. That was the verdict. You know, but. I mean, yeah. don't comment yeah. and say if you were to sit down and look at this case with fresh eyes, he would still be the main suspect. And as yeah. you said, you don't know if he has or he hasn't. But if he hasn't right. and he's saying those things, again, still insanity. <laughs>
And again, I have to say it's frustrating, but it's not surprising um, because, again, and I'll be clear, I have no idea because Mr. Wendling hasn't told me what, whether he's read this case or not. But I've been in very similar situations where an elected chief prosecutor is going absolutely to the to the hilt, you know, battling you on something. And then when I've spoken with them, they've actually admitted to me that they haven't read a brief that we wrote. They're going by whatever their office and their their underlings are telling them. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is what Wendling does. They get called out for this insane fabrication they told the jury. Just like the setting me up with Philip Joplin, the inmate snitch, who admitted he lied about everything, and them telling the jury there was no deal, and then we found all the documents for the secret deal with the judge's name right on them. The same judge who told the jury there's no deal was involved in the secret deal. Now the airplane thing doesn't matter. I've said this to you so many times before, but if it wasn't so serious, yeah. it would be a comedy. It's so ridiculous. And it just this is, this is his concern now. Everything, I've taken polygraphs. That doesn't matter to him. Philip Joplin admitted he lied about everything. That was the only other direct evidence. That doesn't matter. We got the best eyewitness expert in the nation, Dr. Dysart, who tore this case apart and said this is the worst wrongful conviction based on a bad ID she's seen in her entire career. And then they now say, the, by the way, the airplane thing was a lie, and you knew it was a lie all along. You lied to the jury, and you lied about how it could happen. And we bring in your airplane hangar managers from both cities, and we, when we get people that know your pilot, including his ex-wife, who all say he's a pathological liar, who made this entire story up. And then they say, well, that doesn't matter either. Well, you're not, now you have no case. There, there's the whole case. And, of course, we have their quote, which is post, posted on the New Era site, where they said, well, if it wasn't for that parking lot ID from Rennie Gobain, we wouldn't have a case. And he was hypnotized, and as we all know, he made the entire story up after hypnosis. Uh, Mr. Wendling is by no means the expert on this case. I think he's relying on stuff that his office has said before. And and at this point, you know, even the prosecutors that would handle this case, if if there were to be more court proceedings, those are not the same people that were involved the last time there were court proceedings, the time before that. I think everyone is relying on stuff that was said in the past. And that's why we've, uh, you know, to some extent been in this loop of 
we rebut the exact same allegations every single time in every brief in every clemency the 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 um responses the prosecution makes are things we've addressed numerous times over the years it's just they're repeating what they've said in prior briefs without accounting for anything that we've said so you know i was surprised he spoke up at all um i suppose it's it's good to speak up but you know I, I do think that um, the opinions he are, he's giving is is he's just parroting what others in his office are saying. That's just my view. Right. He says, if I'm 30 years yeah. later looking at this case and the media attention and the position that <clears throat> yourself has taken, I'm thinking, why did I even yeah. mention the damn aeroplane? Well, because if he didn't mention the damn aeroplane, how, how does he get 400 miles in a short period of, of time? There's no other possible way other than teleportation, which we know they right. tro- they, they did discuss at one point. And, and remember, remember now, on the record, they asked Kathy Dyer, in a, in a police transcribed interview if she thought I could teleport. And she literally said, are you stupid? It's, this is in a transcribed interview that we have. Kathy Dyer was the nurse that saw me in the Taekwondo school the day of the murder at about 11.40 in the afternoon. It's just two, hour, two and a half hours after the murder, 500 miles away. And this is in the middle of a, of a massive blizzard. What we don't often talk about during the case is, and we have the documents to show this, the Upper Peninsula, the whole area was covered in so much snow that Highway 2 and 41, which is the highway that drives across the Upper Peninsula, was closed because of snow on the 4th, 5th, and 6th. So the day before, the day of, and the day after the murder. That's how much snow there was at that time. So I, I wouldn't have just had to drive this 10-hour drive in, you know, two and a half hours uh, or teleport, but I would have had to do it through enormous snow in the Upper Peninsula. That's just a small little two-lane highway. It was packed with snow. So uh, it, just, it just shows you how crazy this is. And so, yeah, they actually said to her, well, do you think he could teleport? And she's like, she literally says in the interview, are you stupid? Did you really just ask me that? And they said, well, he's got some kind of special ninja skills. And she's like, why didn't he teleport his ass out of the jail then? I mean, it's just how dumb these people really are. And yet I'm still sitting here in Wendley and saying, oh, yeah, if you looked at the case, you'd say he did it. Anyone new coming into that office, if there's a case such as Temujin's, if you're seeing the same name come across your desk over and over again, read it. At least, surely you would think, I'll just, okay, well, I'm going to have a read of this and see, what, see what's going on here because, yeah. you know, there must be something happening here. But it just seems like this constant battle to cover up and to not say, hey, we got it wrong because, they, you know, they want to lose face. It's like, you know, it's okay to say you got it wrong. Actually, people will look at you more favourably if you say, you know what, guys, well, you didn't even get it wrong. Your office years and years and years ago yeah. in the 80s got it terribly wrong. We've changed since then, guys. You know, we are now looking at these things and you know what? That case was not strong. I cannot believe that it can just go on in 2024 now how this can still be going on where people just put their head in the sands, just ignore things, just don't bother to read stuff and it's just crazy. You know, this is a extreme example of it, but unfortunately doing work in this area, it's not it's not unusual. Um it is something that you see to some extent in most cases. Um and I think that is rooted in this very human tendency of not wanting to admit you're wrong. Um, But as I think I've said before, prosecutors have a duty in our system that is to rise above those kinds of things. They are, uh, our our ethical rules refer to prosecutors as ministers of justice. They're not supposed to just be worried about what's good for my side, what's bad for the other side. They're supposed to be worried about what really happened and was justice done. And I think very few prosecutors are really, you know, big enough to live up to that duty. And living up to that duty means not digging in just because something keeps coming back to you. But actually taking a look, and if you've got reasons for why what everybody's been screaming about the Kensu case is wrong, 
you know, put out those reasons. Don't just say, oh, go take a look. It's going to, I mean, that's nonsense. Of course, anyone who reads this is not going to come to a conclusion that Kensu's guilty. And we've had very, you know, neutral and, and, and former prosecutors who are, you know, possibly leaning prosecutorial tell us that, right? That if you bother to look at the actual record of the case, it does not match this whole like smoke cloud that's been created around it, you know, by the prosecution over the years trying to uh, depict Mr. Kensu as the most manipulative and dangerous person in history. He's not. This this crime was a very sad situation of a young man being shot in a parking lot. Mr. Kensu had absolutely nothing to do with it. It was probably a far more uh, solvable crime than the police took it out to be. It wasn't this crazy narrative of, uh, you know, a, a jealous lover or whatever. This was probably someone this young man knew and a, and a conflict that stemmed from a different part of his life. But police missed the opportunity to investigate that. Prosecutors missed the opportunity to pursue that. And today, the way they see it, they have to cling to this or else they have nothing. And like I said, we've seen this before. And the longer it goes on, the harder it is to overcome. Our hope here is that some other actor in the system will basically be the bigger person and do the right thing instead of just, you know, letting the baggage of years of digging into this case color every next step. If you let the last 50 mistakes, you know, make your next action another mistake. I mean, that's not how we improve things in the world, right? We can't just stand by something because it's what we've always done. Now, I would like to point out that I have reached out to Mr. Wendling's office on a number of occasions and offered him the opportunity to come on the show and to chat about Temujin's case. I'm yet to get a response from him or his office. What really happened was they know they got the wrong guy. They rushed to convict somebody. They framed an innocent man and they simply don't want to admit it. And the longer I sit here, the more they're worried that it makes them look bad or that I'm going to have some kind of a payday. And that's all they care about. My prison record does nothing to make them think that I'm going to do anything bad to anybody. I haven't done anything bad to anybody in here in 37 years. Uh, I'm in my 60s with a lot of health problems. I have a wife. I have a home. I have a million friends and job offers. They they don't think that I'm going to do anything bad. So this is really just about keeping the innocent guy in prison. The more proof we get that something is wrong, We have to work to fix it. And I hope that's how the governor and her staff will see this. They don't have the same sort of 40-year history with the case. And if they've got reasonable lawyers reading this stuff, you know, this this should set off all kinds of red flags in their heads of, look, we don't convict people because we don't like them. We don't convict people because we think they're bad people. We convict people when there is evidence. And here, that's not what happened. You know, we are hoping we can find a way or get some help with people that have some internet savvy to help us really blow this thing up to the point where it can't be ignored anymore. And, you know, eventually we'll get justice. And that's kind of where we're at right now, unfortunately. We need this thing to go viral, as they say these days, Mr. Kenzie. Yeah, we need to go viral. So um, I love you and your listeners. And if you know anybody who can help us blow it up, we need some help blowing it up. Mate, I'm, I'm trying to get hold of Kim Kardashian. <laughs> I don't know how much oh, luck I'm, go, yeah. how much luck I'm going to have there, but yeah. you know if we can get her on side, that that'll certainly uh, make some noise. Yeah, she got 44 million followers. She can probably get a few people to say something kind our way. I'd say and, so. Uh, yeah. And bless her heart for doing what she has. Thank you for using GTL. As Temujin mentions, they are trying to get this case and his story to gain as much traction as possible. So much so that it is simply unavoidable. The governor and her office must respond. So, in the show notes of this episode, there's a link to all the details on just how you can help. The best part is, it's simple and costs nothing. 
There is a social media campaign that Temujin and his wife Paula are trying to get traction with. Now every day we post about our lives online. Well, why not make today a post about someone else? Someone else who's had their life stolen from them. Hashtag free Temujin Kenzu. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay. Listener.